Open your Bibles to Luke uh, chapter 1. We, uh, of course, enjoy the music uh, that our choir brings for us uh, this year. We enjoy the music probably throughout the season. And, of course, realtors know, uh, excuse me, retailers, retailers, not realtors, (laughs) retailers know that you love it. Uh, They play it uh, earlier and earlier, it seems, uh, in the season. In fact, it it results in something that uh, people have noted. They, they, they call it the Christmas creep, which is not the Santa on the corner that's a little too friendly. It is that uh, tendency for the Christmas season to creep earlier and earlier and earlier so that now, sometimes even before Halloween, we begin to hear Christmas music. Stretching it out because uh, retailers know that that puts us in the mood to spend money which is exactly what they want. And of course, we hear these songs all the time. I'm not disturbed by that. I love Christmas music myself, but it does grieve me that so little of it that we hear in, our, in the hallways of our stores or in, the, um, in, the, in the, the retailers or whatever it might be. So little of it has to do with the whole meaning of Christmas. It's not always... Uh, been this prevalent. In fact, uh, there was no such thing as particular Christmas music for the first 12, 1300 years of the church. It wasn't until the Middle Ages that you started to even have this idea of a Christmas season. And it was at that time that people started to sing uh, uh, what they would call carols, which is sort of songs that were sung in a circle with religious themes, usually sung off at some distance so that there was a a sound of a a heavenly echo. In fact, the first documentation we have of anything like this, a Christmas carol or a Christmas song, wasn't until 1426. Eventually, these carols were employed by what became known as wassailers, these groups of people that would go door-to-door singing for charitable donations because they understood that the music might move people to perhaps be more emotional and maybe more generous because of that. It was thought perhaps maybe even more agreeable than simply begging for money to perform for people. And so the tradition of Christmas carols and Christmas music began to take root, particularly in England, until the Puritans came along And when they took power in Parliament under the uh, leadership of Oliver Cromwell, passed legislation which prohibited Christmas songs as they saw it a corruption of the biblical emphasis. They saw it really as uh, an outcropping from a pagan festival. And so Christmas celebration was actually outlawed in England from 1645 And music came to an end for a while until 1660, 15 years later, Charles II came to the throne and celebrations were again allowed. But still, most of the songs that we know today weren't known in those days. In fact, most of the ones that we hear today were first put into print maybe 150 years ago. And yet those are the things that so many people begin to associate with Christmas. This is the way they think about Christmas, the songs that they know so well. In fact, the top five songs uh, that apparently are celebrated 
Uh, number five, Merry Christmas, everyone. Number four, do they know it's a Christmas? Number three, a fairy tale. Oh, I'm sorry, that's the British list. The American list is a, a white Christmas. Santa Claus is coming to town. Winter Wonderland. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. And uh, the Christmas song, you know, chestnuts roasting by a rope at fire. It's an interesting thing. Of those top five songs, uh, three of them were written by Jews who don't even celebrate Christmas. None of them celebrate the birth of Christ. The top five songs, at least in our nation. But this morning, I want to turn your attention to a, a real Christmas song. In fact, it was sung very early. It was sung by the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. We might think of it as the very first celebration of Christmas. And we find it in Luke chapter 1. It's not a song that most people think about. It's not one we even sing today. But it's a great place for us to set our hearts in the mood and the mindset of Christmas this season. And I want to read it to you so we can familiarize it in our, in our minds. I wish I could sing it, but uh, that wouldn't be very pleasant Luke 1, verse 46, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. This is a song. It's marked off in most of your Bibles with indentation, indicating that it's poetical or lyrical verse. Traditionally known as Mary's Magnificat, it derives its name Magnificat from the first word in the Latin text, Magnificat anime mea dominum, or as we read here, my soul magnifies the Lord. The first word in Greek is megalune. Literally, enlarge. And it really describes what Mary was trying to convey, that she was expanding in her heart the place that she gives to God. She was expanding the Lord's name. She was magnifying Him, both within and without, for all who would hear her. I love the quote by Alexander McLaren. He says, We magnify God when we take into our vision some fragment more of the complete circle of His essential greatness. The attendant effect of all His dealings is that we should think more nobly, and that is more worthily, of Him. End quote. This was Mary. This is what she was singing. And what she's telling her cousin Elizabeth in this setting and what God has recorded for us, what was going on in her heart, is that she, because of the events taking place in her life, she's thinking more nobly. She's, if you will, adding some fragment to her understanding of the way God works and what He does. And by doing that, she's enlarging what she thinks of God. She's magnifying the Lord. 
a song here that has been recognized because of its beauty through the years for its structural effect ought to strike us because of the beauty of its message. This is Mary's response to Christmas. This is what she, you might say, got out of it. This is what she got out of the message of the coming of her Savior. And of course, it couldn't be more different from the majority of songs that people associate with Christmas today. There are no cozy thoughts of snows and bells and comforts of home. There's nothing about gifts or ornaments or feasts. It's a song that is thoroughly centered on God. It is a theological song, a very theological song. It's a song for, from a needy and a lowly, and we might even say a poor young woman who we shouldn't forget, is pondering these things. After having heard a vision from the Lord, that she would conceive, even though she's a virgin, she would conceive and bear a son. And it wouldn't have been lost on her what the implications of this are. Certainly, she was celebrating the theological implications, but she would have understood the kind of misunderstanding, the kind of suspicion, the kind of reproach that would be cast at her for, for being found pregnant outside of marriage. In fact, this is the, the dominant question that she has whenever the angel comes to her. And yet, thinking about what the Lord is doing, her focus isn't one of self-pity and feelings of sorrow because of the situation the Lord has placed her in. There is no sense that somehow God is... Uh, is not fulfilling her desires or gratifying uh, her dreams on this earth. There is no immediate promise, uh, even in her life, that her situation in poverty would be uh, eradicated or that all the suspicions and disdains uh, that come from society because of what the Lord is calling to her are going to be removed. There's none of that. And yet the plan of Christ and the plan of the Messiah being brought to fulfillment through her brings celebration. It brings joy, it brings delight in the Lord and His character and His mercy. Someone like Herod last week who saw the birth of Christ as some sort of threat against his worldly comforts and power, she didn't respond looking at Jesus as some... some, uh, uh, vehicle that was supposed to aid her in her in her worldly security. She looked at herself as a servant of this Lord. And she looked at God as more merciful to her than she could deserve. And so what we have here is a hymn of humbleness by Mary, broken down into four stanzas, emphasizing the Lord's mercy, the Lord's unending mercy. Mercy, four stanzas of a hymn that celebrate that mercy in four unique ways. The first, in verses 46 through 48, we see Mary's delight in God, or Mary's delight in God's plan. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, because he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. And behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She begins with praise, 
with rejoicing because of God's grace in her life personally. She's celebrating, first of all, God as her Savior. She magnifies Him for what He's doing to her. In classic Hebrew parallelism, by the way, here, she, she sort of states her magnification, or really the soul, how her soul magnifies the Lord, and then she expands on that with her spirit. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So first her soul, then her spirit. And all of this poetical language employed to to recognize that God has shown His grace to her. She speaks in the sort of the classic Hebrew uh, language of one who recognizes their need for salvation. There's no sense here that Mary considers herself worthy of this. No sense, certainly, that she considers herself sinless. She is as much of a sinner, as much in need of a Savior as the rest of us. And so her celebration of Christmas, we might say, begins with a celebration of God's salvation. It begins with a recognition of her place as a sinner. And she's rejoicing in God as her Savior. But not only that, but also as her glory. Because as she says in verse 48, He's looked on the humble estate of His servant. He's looked with favor on her. She's recognizing not just that the Lord has tolerated her sin. He hasn't just sort of reluctantly or grudgingly allowed her some salvation. But she's rejoicing that God is showing her favor. He's looked upon her. It's an Old Testament way of talking about God's condescending favor to uh, look down upon us, upon those who really deserve nothing more but to be ignored and really to be cast aside by the Lord. But the Lord doesn't do that. He looks upon us. Even more dramatic when you consider who Mary is, or we might even say who Mary isn't. She's a nobody. She is a forgotten girl from a forgotten village, one of low social position. This is what she means when she says the humble estate of her servant, of his servant. She's, in other words, she's saying, I'm the last person on earth, really, that God should have paid attention to. And yet he did. He remembered me. He looked down upon me. And Mary can't get over this. She magnifies God. God has been good to me, in other words, and I don't deserve it. We may judge differently than Mary sometimes. We might imagine that somehow God owes us more. We might imagine even during this season that somehow God has cheated us out of what we deserve. We might imagine that we have it harder than everyone else and woe is me and, and uh, look around with some sense of gloom because of what we feel like we deserve and what we feel like we may be cheated out of. But this wasn't Mary. She wasn't looking around at the world around her and looking at their comforts and their ease and their wealth and their riches. She was overwhelmed that the Lord would even take a gaze at her. Here we are after so many years of people who have um, built up in their tradition this idea that Mary is somehow to be worshipped. 
but she can do nothing but cast her worship upon God. She knows she's a sinner. She knows she needs a Savior. She magnifies God because of His mercy. By the way, that's the only way you can approach God. She's not anything particular. This is exactly what Jesus teaches us. Over in Luke 18, He tells a story of two people who go into the temple. And one of them stands in the front and he prays and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, uh, you know, adulterers or whatever it might be, uh, all of their sinful tendencies. And, and then at the back, unwilling to even lift, lift up his face toward God, there's a man who bows low and beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, it's that man who leaves that day justified. Or another way to say is that that man is the one who leaves the worship service that day right with God. Not the one who praises himself because of all that he feels like he's given to God and all that he feels like he's dedicated, but it's the man who feels like he has nothing to give, only to plead God's mercy. Mary exemplifies that, but this is the heart of every true believer. This is the way you approach God. This is the way that you are justified before Him. This is the point of her song, and it really takes us uh, to the second part, the second stanza in verses 49 through 50. Recognizing how good God has been to her, she realizes there are many who may doubt that goodness, and so she sings, if you will, in defense of God's holy name. She understands that there might be people who would even question God, There may be many in her own day who did that, question whether God or His promises are really that true and really that good. Some would even question her for trusting them given her present circumstances, given what she's about to face in her social situation. They might imagine that God, in fact, had just made her life worse because she's going to be cast under these aspersions and suspicions because of his plans for her. But that wasn't the way Mary sees it. It's not the way she wants others to see it. She's, she's amazed. And you hear it coming from her lips. I mean, really, it's interesting when she says this, singing of God's goodness, the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is His name. You would have been hard-pressed, really, at that point, other than perhaps a a vision that she had, you would have been hard-pressed to have pointed to anything in her life that most people would have characterized as the Lord's goodness. She was apparently, as I said, an unknown girl from an unknown village, no connections, no... no, uh, no well-known family that we know of. No, uh, no special lineage that was recognized by society, though in God's providence he knew that she had a past connection to the Davidic line. She certainly wasn't treated like royalty in her day. And now to add burden to her probably already difficult life, 
she would be characterized as one who had been unfaithful. All the while living under an oppressive ruler, facing the the full difficulty of life in that time, hard to survive, under heavy taxation, under occupation by a foreign enemy, under the oppressive weight of a religious system that, that foisted itself on the population with pseudo-righteousness, she would have been unrecognized for any of her virtues. Harder times, in fact, lay ahead for her. But what Mary is saying here is that the Lord has done great things for her. So, um, it's interesting. She, she uses uh, aorist tense verbs here. Now, those are typically the ones that are associated with past action, completed action. Speaking, we might say, in past tense as if the Lord had already done these things, even though what she really is referring to is in the future. In fact, uh, in verse, back in verse 45, her cousin Elizabeth had blessed her. Blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Elizabeth even recognized that these things haven't come to pass yet. She's blessed because she believed what will happen in the future. And so confident is she in the Lord's goodness, she speaks about them as if they're already a settled fact. I remember um, um, taking my wife to a dinner one night. We weren't married at this point. We were just uh, friends. But I knew certainly what was in my heart. And so I um, began to speak to her about, um, you know, the kind of things we needed to prepare for for our upcoming ceremony and uh, kind of how many uh, groomsmen we might have and what kind of songs we might uh, you know, have played, and all the while she's sitting across the table thinking, um, haven't you forgotten some very important part of this, which was the question, you know, will you marry me? I was running ahead with um, all of the other things that had to be done from a logistical standpoint. Um, Although I was a poor communicator, in my mind, it was a settled deal. In my mind, the promise was uh, there in my heart and it was as complete uh, as if it had already been spoken. Well, for Mary, the, the goodness of the Lord, the, the promises that he had already given to her, they were as good as fulfilled. They were as good as fulfilled. And she's rejoicing already in what the Lord has done, indeed what the Lord will do for her. So much confidence that the Lord is true to his word. And she would have no one denigrate God's faithfulness. Holy is His name. He set apart, He will do what He has said. He will bring to pass all that He's promised. Because He's holy. Wonderful thing. Mary does, pleading with us and all who would listen to believe in the Lord even when His goodness is yet in promise form, not even fully manifest yet. 
fact, in verse 50, she apparently quotes from the Old Testament, remembering that God had promised that he would remember in his kindness the weak from generation to generation. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She's, she's kind of hearkening back to all those people who, who waited for the Lord's goodness, who waited for the Lord's kindness, who were steadfast in hope because of him and unwavering in their faith. Mary places herself in line with all of them. She thinks about how the Lord is honoring her. She thinks about how the Lord has promised to honor all those who hope in Him. And she calls us to do the same. Don't forget, His mercy never ends. His promises are always to remember the holy, excuse me, the humble, because He is holy. This is Mary's defense of his name. He, he does remember. He does keep his promises. And it leads us to, to, to the third stanza. The, the description of God's ways. Now she's getting into detail. Exactly what you need to trust. This is exactly what you need to believe. This is the goodness that she's talking about. And she basically sets it up with three contrasts. First of all, the moral She wants you to be confident that the Lord remembers those who are humble. And the proud are contrasted here with the humble when she says that God scattered those who are proud in thoughts of their hearts. That's what she says in verse 51, showing the strength of His arm, scattering the proud, those who are arrogant. She says God is... is, uh, Not just at work, in other words, in the lives of the humble. He's at work in the lives of the proud, frustrating their efforts, frustrating their life, eventually bringing them down from their haughty places. And so for all of those who may doubt whether or not God sees and whether God knows, whether God even pays attention to the the, the proud who trod on the weak, for all of those who might imagine that the the prideful are getting away with their arrogance, she reminds us that God is at work scattering them. And not just morally, she even says socially. The oppressors are contrasted with the oppressed when she says there, He brings down the mighty from their thrones and exalts those of humble estate. Whether it is a Moses or a David or a Daniel, God takes those who are in humble estate and exalts them. Jesus, obviously, being the the chiefest example of that. And He brings down those who, even in this world, appear to have, have seized on their reward. I mean, you have maybe the greatest contrast in Herod and Jesus. Herod, who was in that day everything in, the, in his own country, he was celebrated as the great builder. He was feared by everyone who was around him. He was in control of all of the wealth. The master in his own kingdom. 
And yet today, who do we sing songs about? One who was born in a stable. One who spent his days, his childhood, and many of his young adult days in obscurity. This is what God does. Morally, He scatters the proud. Socially, He brings down the haughty rulers. And Mary even describes God's ways by making an economic contrast. He fills the hungry with good things and sends away the rich empty-handed. She recognizes that God hears our cries in even the most basic ways. She's reminding you if you are one of these walking humbly before the Lord, one of these who are even walking empty, that God doesn't forget. His promises aren't just mere empty platitudes. They are indeed, they're good, they're faithful. You can trust in them. This is what she's taking from the Christmas story. This is what overwhelmed her. That God was sending a Savior, His Son, in human flesh in such a way as to show that He stands with the humble and the weak and the needy. And that even this Savior one day will thwart all that the world seeks. And as the Old Testament prophet says, He'll come and His reward is with Him. He'll come and His reward is with Him. These things weren't visible outwardly for Mary, but they were as good as done. They were as good as done. She believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And I want you to notice where Mary takes this song as she declares the Lord's faithfulness to His Word. The fourth stanza there, which is the declaration of His faithful character. He has given help to Israel, His servant, in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to His offspring forever. Mary now, reflecting on how the Lord has remembered her, she thinks about how He's also remembered all of His promises to Israel. She reflects on the fact that through her child, God is going to accomplish the greatest testimony of His faithfulness. He's going to fulfill a covenant, a promise He had made 1,400 years earlier. This is really what generated her whole song. This is the reason which she's basing all of her praise on. God, uh, she's celebrating God's goodness in remembering His promise to Abraham. You say, well, what is that promise? It's really this, that in spite of all of Israel's sin, God would send a seed, an offspring, to save Israel. In the verse 4, this is, this is what he's doing in remembrance of his mercy. It was a promise, in other words, to show mercy to Abraham. It wasn't a promise to reward all of 
his righteous deeds. It wasn't a promise that if he worked hard enough, he would stand before God. It wasn't a promise that, you know, if he could present himself as better than everyone else, that God would accept him. It was a promise of mercy. A promise that although Israel would continually return to idolatry and although they would turn away from God numerous, numerous times, that God would never cast them off. A promise that although they would prove themselves the most unworthy after all these years, God would still show them mercy. They might have assumed after all this time, in fact, many assumed in Mary's day that God had ultimately rejected them because they had been so wicked. He'd cast them into exile never to return. And if it wasn't Babylonian exile, it was now Roman oppression, which most of the Jews in the first century looked at as a sort of exile. They saw themselves still in captivity, under oppression, And Mary's telling them, no, in spite of all that, the Lord remembers. His mercy is still new. You have that same faith of Abraham, who believed, you remember, even after a hundred years, a hundred years old, when all hope was lost, he believed against hope that God would fulfill what He promised. This is, this is Mary's song. This is really the Christmas song. It's not about snow or snowmen or chestnuts or trees. It's about God resisting the proud. It's about God giving grace to the humble. It's about submitting your whole life, your whole reputation, your whole hope, and all of your pursuits into the hands of God because of His holy name. It's about trusting His promises, even when the world may not trust them. It's about going along in His way, even when the world around you might appear to be rewarded in their way. It's about believing that God always fulfills what He's promised. It's about believing that He remembers the humble. And that those who humble themselves before the Lord and place their complete trust in Him, God pours out to you unspeakable favor. It's a favor of salvation. You're saved. Your sins are wiped away. You're renewed in your spirit. And it's a favor of eternal, eternal hope. Resurrected in glorified bodies, dwelling together with Christ forever, reigning together with Him, just as He promised. This is a Christmas story. It's one that we ought to celebrate. It's one that we ought to remember. It's one that even as we gather with family this week, hopefully will we'll enlarge in our minds the glory of the Lord. And we'll claim yet another, even fragmentary, expansion in our minds of how good the Lord has been to us. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Bow together with me.
Father, we're grateful for this and grateful for Mary's song. We could only pray that it would become our song, that the way that she responded to the coming of our Savior be the way that we respond. Remembering how unworthy we are, remembering your favor toward us as sinners. Remembering that even in the way in which He came, You communicate to us how You remember those of humble estate. And Lord, we gladly take our place along Mary to say that we have no good, no virtue by which to commend ourselves to You. We stand simply under Your favor and under Your grace. We trust Your promises that as we present ourselves to You, as we follow in Your plan, as we walk according to Your ways, You will remember us and Your name will be celebrated as holy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.